Well, good morning. Welcome to Vertical Life Church. I'm Pastor Joey. For those of you that are new, we thank you so much for being here with us today. We believe here at Vertical Life Church that everyone matters to God. So you matter, and your story matters. And we're thankful that you chose to spend some time with us. And uh, hopefully, uh, after the service, if I have not had a chance to meet with you, uh, I can connect with you for just a few moments just to uh, just welcome you and say thank you for coming today. We are currently in a, a four-week teaching series. We're now week three of a, a series we're calling RE, uh, really to kind of go back and recapture the vision that God has given us for our church. Really what we believe as leaders and what I believe as the pastor, God wants to do in and through Vertical Life Church in this community. And so we have been kind of just uh, unpacking the vision and, and what uh, uh, God has been speaking to our life uh, as a church and what he wants us to do. So today we're talking about re, and the, the title of the message today is called Re-Sign. And I'm not talking about resigning or resigning from the vision or resigning from something, but to re-sign, to make your mark on the dotted line of the vision of God, to make your mark. The word sign, according to Merriam-Webster, comes from a Latin word, uh, the word signum, and it means a mark or an indication. It gives us the root word sign. Words from the Latin word signum have something to do with marks, signs, or indications. A sign is a move of the hand that indicates something to others. A sign is also a signal. It's an indication that an action should begin. So when we're talking about re-sign, really what we're talking about is re-engaging your hearts, not just to agree with the vision, but to now begin to take action on the vision. Uh, it's something material or external that stands for or signifies something spiritual to now put into action what we've been discussing. And we've discussed in week one, revision, looking back at what God has declared over our ministry. Last week, we talked about resetting our hearts and our minds to come into agreement with God's vision for the church. And now today, we're talking about re-signing up for the journey that he has set before us, to recommit, to re-surrender yourself again. The prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, uh, verse 8 this is a, a word that God spoke to my heart this week as I was preparing this message. Uh, Isaiah was one of the greatest prophets of the Old Testament. There's a whole uh, a book dedicated to Isaiah and his writings. And Isaiah, uh, most notably, is considered the first gospel. Uh, if you look at Isaiah, especially Isaiah chapter 53, you really have a depiction of the crucifixion of Christ and really the gospel before the gospel in the Old Testament. In Isaiah chapter 6, God appears to Isaiah and gives him a vision of what uh, the state of Israel and a vision of what God wants to do to call Israel back to himself. In Isaiah verse uh, uh, 8 of chapter 6, this is what the word declares. This is what Isaiah declares. He says, Then I heard the Lord asking again, Whom should I send as a messenger to this people? Who will go for us? So God is declaring this vision. God is declaring his heart, his burden for the people. And he's asking Isaiah a very simple question. Who will go for me? Who will go? Who will go take on this challenge? Who will take on this vision? Who will go for us? And Isaiah said, here I am, send me. Here I am, 
send me. Isaiah did not give God a list of names of who he thought might be more qualified candidates. Isaiah did not say, God, you know, that ministry's really not for me. I just don't really see myself fitting in that spot. I, 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 I don't think that that's really a good fit. Please don't ask me. Ask somebody else for that. Isaiah didn't do that. No, he caught the vision. He reset his will to be in agreement with God's will. He surrendered to the call of God on his life, and he signed up for the task at hand. And God did something very powerful. God anointed him with power to accomplish the ministry that he had for him. He anointed him with power to accomplish the very thing that God wanted to do. And see, I've been saying this through this message series, but I truly believe, I believe that Vertical Life Church is not just a ministry, it is a movement. That God wants this to be a movement, a movement born right here in Clio that goes far-reaching, that, that he has birthed within us a heart's desire to see the entire world come to Christ and to do that through leveraging our resources, our strengths, and partner, building partnerships in the community and elsewhere to live a big shoe print in the kingdom of God. I really believe that. And as we talked over the last couple of th- uh, weeks, really, when things get tough or don't turn out like you thought, or maybe uh, things don't move forward as fast as you wanted them to, when a movement doesn't seem to move, anybody have feel like that in your life? You feel like you're supposed to be heading somewhere, but the movement isn't moving. It's easy to become discouraged, even complacent or disheartened. And when we get to that spot where we're in a difficult transition and the movement's not moving, the tendency is to want to resign from the vision, not re-sign up for the vision. The tendency is to want to maybe back away and go look for something that fits more of the idea of what ministry the ministry should be rather than re-sign up for the vision that God has already spoken over your life and pursue hard after it. We talked in the first week about capturing the vision again and letting that spark hope that God has something more for us than just what we see around us and believing that what God sees is actually what we really are. Talking about the valley of dry bones in Ezekiel 37, how Ezekiel saw a valley of dry bones, but what God saw was an exceedingly great army. That what God sees is what we really are, not what the valley of bones would have us to believe. And then last week again, we talked about resetting our hearts to refocus on the most important thing about church life. This is what really I think we struggle with, especially in our modern day, where we're more considered or concerned with what's happening on Facebook than what's happening in our families. That, that, that really the most important thing about the church and church life is not buildings, kids' ministry, praise teams, lights and sounds and trendiness and coolness factors. No, the most important thing is our love for Jesus Christ and our love for one another. That's the most important thing. Without love, we have nothing. Without, without love, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, without love, we have nothing. There's nothing that we can do, no greatness we can achieve. If love is not the motivating factor, then we have nothing. Ministry, this church, and Christianity will forever be about people over processes and possessions. You know, when someone you love or, or, or something you love is struggling, you don't just quit on them. You commit to them. 
You stand by them, and you help them out of their circumstances. I'm so thankful that in our time of greatest need, God didn't just say, I'm out. No, he said, I'm in, and I'm all in, to the point that I'm going to give my life for them on the cross. So it's no secret that the Detroit Lions really are not a winning team. You know, they win some games here or there, but the team was purchased and relocated to Detroit for the 1934 season. It's a long time ago. And the Lions have won a total of four national championships, NFL championships. They're tied for ninth overall in total championships amongst all 32 NFL franchises. However, their last win was in 1957, which gives the club the second longest NFL championship drought behind the Arizona Cardinals. They're not doing very well. It is a safe bet to bet against the Lions if you're picking a winning team. I'm just saying. Just saying. The odds of having them win a season are not very good. All the signs point to a losing season. Yet, there are people who love the Lions so much that no matter how many games they lose, they still buy the hat, they still buy the shirt, they won't stop showing up to the games to support their team because deep down they have a love in their heart for this team. And that love produces a hope that one day they will see a winning season again. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 7, what he says about love, he says this, love never gives up. Love never loses faith. It is always hopeful, and it endures through every circumstance. See, if we really love Christ, if we really love Jesus, and we really love each other, we will have a no-quit mentality. We won't resign from the vision of God. We will revision, we will reset, and we will re-sign to commit to the vision, even in a valley of bones. Because that love that we have for Christ and the love for one another will produce a hope that will help us hope for a winning season again. That will help us see that the bones will rise again that the seeds that we've sown from the beginning will sprout and the harvest we will reap will be bountiful. You see, part of the reason why in this day and age, why we lose interest or get disheartened is because we've not only lost the vision, but we also lose love along the way and we lose that zeal that we had at first. And something that we need to understand about church and church life, especially in church planting, you get a lot of this in, in uh, workshops and in training uh, but you don't really hear a lot about this in a, in a church setting. But what we need to know about planting a church, is, which is actually what we're doing, we're not an established church, so to speak. We're only four years old. We launched four years ago. We've been meeting in this auditorium just about ever since. We started in a small coffee shop, outgrew that, and now we've been meeting here since 2014. So we really are planting a church here. And in church planting, in church life, there are cycles and there are milestones. There are different cycles and milestones that you can expect in the life of a church, especially in church planting. Recently, I attended a, a church leadership workshop uh, ho really hosted by uh, a church in Granville, Resurrection Life Church. And the main speaker there, the keynote speaker there, was a pastor named Matt Keller from Next Level Church in Florida. They're, they're a mega church. They run a little over 3,000 people, I believe. Um, but he was describing these growth milestones. And, and I have a slide here for you just to give you a snapshot 
that these are different milestones that really leaders and churches look to in the life of their church. The first is called the family phase. This is a population or a membership of 150 or less. In the family phase, everyone kind of feels like family, right? Everyone kind of knows each other. We know what's going on. Everyone's kind of involved in everything. There's certain expectations on leadership that, that you have that they're going to be at every hospital, you know, visit. They're going to be at weddings and funerals and, and that everyone's just going to know what's going on and it's going to feel like a family. But as a church begins to grow, they leave the family phase when they enter the 250 to 300 range and this is called the organizational phase. This organizational phase is a period of time where things begin to feel a little less like family and a lot more like a, a larger organization where there's more structures, more systems. It's, it's less last second and it's more so planning, you know, three years in advance type of situation. But as the church begins to grow and it pushes through the organizational phase, it hits the medium-sized phase from 400 to 500. And then so it just as there are changes that had to be made in the organizational phase, more structure is implemented in the medium-sized phase. You tend to bring on more staff, and you have more ministries, more outreach, more structure, and the like. And, this, and so on. 750 to 800 is a large-sized church, and 1,000-plus is considered a mega church. And at each phase that a church goes through, there are different hurdles that the church needs to jump through in order to push through into the next phase. But now if you're like me, and you're full of optimistic thinking, that you would probably think that four years ago when we launched this church, in faith, we stepped out in faith, we were like, yes, God, we know you're doing something. This is going to be awesome. This is exciting. Everyone is ready to tackle on the world. We're going to change this culture, this community. We're going to make this big impact. We stepped out in faith. And if you're like me, you'd probably think we should be at that 1,000 mark by now. Right, wait, right, wait, faith was just driving this thing. We should be at a thousand plus by now. We should be on our way to our fourth or our fifth building project. We should have land and, and all this stuff just knocking it out of the park. The problem is that is not the typical story of a church. Matt shared even the, the history of his church, Next Level Church. He said they planted in a movie theater and about three years or so they outgrew the room that they were using and they moved into a school where they remained for another seven or so years. They were a set-up, tear-down, start-up church just like us for going on 10 years of ministry. There's another church closer to us in Montrose, a church called Lamb of God Christian Fellowship. They're the church we partnered with to bring the conquerors here and to, to do some outreach. They met in a conference center for 12 years as a set-up, tear-down, starting church. And I use these examples to reveal that really God's timing for growth, God's timing for the next level, and our timing are really two different things. They're two different things. And often what gets us discouraged and what drives us to look for greener grass in another yard when things don't really happen or they're not the way we expect, what, what causes us to, to not hold fast to the vision uh, and have really a lack of patience is that understanding, not recognizing that what God is doing and the time that it takes to reap a harvest often is longer than what we would like. But the reality is, is that anytime you give God a timetable, to determine really your level of commitment and obedience, it already proves that you have a lack of faith. And what you're more interested in is a desire for comfort and control. And it reveals who is really sitting on the throne of your heart. 
that you're seeking really fleshly desires to be pleased, to be comforted, things about you rather than what God has for you, to submit to God's will for your life. But sometimes to take you into his promise, just like Israel, you have to walk through a desert. Sometimes God needs to lead you through a valley of dry bones in order to help you become an exceedingly great army. You see, after the nation of Israel, they got to the promised land. God had led them through the Red Sea, you know, dumped all the plagues on Egypt. They came out victoriously. He led them through the desert to the promised land, and he said, okay, go in, take this thing. And they were kind of nervous, so they sent the 12 spies. Remember that story? They sent in the 12 spies. They created a kid's song. 12 spies went to spy on Canaan. Ten were bad and two were good. You know, that was one of the kid's songs in old Sunday school. They sent out 12 spies. Ten came back freaked out. They're like, no way. This isn't going to happen. And two are like, yeah, our God's big. Let's do this. Right? But because the ten were so scared, their fear penetrated or infiltrated the people. And they decided God's not big enough to take this land for us. And so they were like, no, we're going to head back to Egypt. So God got upset. And he's like, fine. You don't want the land? I'm not going to give it to you. You're going to wander the desert for 40 years. And then after 40 years, after this faithless generation dies off, then I'll give you the land. And there was a group of people that, that were with the Israelites that said, oh, that doesn't sound as good as going to the promised land now, so we're going to change our mind, and we're going to just go for it now. So they were rebelling against God first to go into the promised land, and then they were rebelling against God to not go into the desert. And they went to try to take the land for themselves, and they were uh, just beat to a pulp. There was a war, the battle they lost profusely. They were driven out of the land like a dog with their uh, tail between their legs. You see, anytime you fail to follow God and submit to his will, you pull yourself out of the center of his blessing, and you open yourself up to attack and defeat and battle. And in the case of the church in our day, though we're not fighting physical kingdoms, we are wrestling against a spiritual kingdom. Paul says in Ephesians 6.12, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers in the kingdoms in the heavenly places. There is a spiritual army that is against us. And anytime we take ourselves out of the center of God's blessing, it opens us up to spiritual attack. And what usually happens in a church is that it begins to manifest itself in the life of the people in the form of self-centered religion that feeds pride and that does not produce the very character of Christ. Paul said Christ's character was that though he was equal with God, he did not think it was robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and submitted himself to even the form of a servant, a servant that gave himself even to the death on the cross. There's nothing in Jesus that is self-seeking, but is seeking the glory of God, the Father. James 4.10 says, humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. And honor. Honor does not come before humility. Jesus humbled himself and he was given a name which is above every other name. And if we want to see the blessings, we want to see this vision come to pass, we want to see God do miracles and miraculous things within us and through us, it starts with humbling ourselves to his will and then letting him lift us up at the right time. It's my experience that God will only lead a person away from a church really for one or of two reasons. Either uh, blatant heresy or, or unrepentant sin within the church to the point that it's, it's so self-destructive that it can't be any good for the kingdom of God. And so God pulls faithful people out into another place to 
to uh, shepherd them and lead them to be more healthy. Or number two, God places a specific call on your life to do ministry, and he leads you to another place to fulfill that call in your life. God will never pull you out of a church because there are problems of inner turmoil at personal relationships, because you don't agree with leadership on superficial things. God will never just pull you out because things aren't going the way you think they should be going. God's will is that when we have disunity, that Matthew 18, that there's unity, we come together, we make up, we forgive one another, we restore our relationships. There will never be a church on this earth that will be exactly the way we want it. There will always be some flaw, some brokenness that you could point to. The pursuit of the perfect church is like really lust or greed. You always come up empty. You always come up unhappy. You will never be fulfilled, and you will leave one church only to find another one to be excited about and end up leaving that church on another quest for perfection at some point in the future. It has been taught to me as a young child and a young minister and even now that your fulfillment in the church will solely be based on your commitment and your heart attitude. Your commitment and your heart attitude. You can be involved, but you cannot be committed. You can be involved, but not committed. And it's my experience that those who are not committed will be the most unsatisfied and will usually be the first to leave at a sign of dissatisfaction. Matt Keller at this leadership conference, he really said something profound. He said that we look to the different growth levels, the different levels in church growth as progress destinations. So uh, if you're in the family phase, you look to the, the, the next phase up as the, the destination. And for us, maybe we're looking to having a building as a destination, that once we have a building, then we'll be good, or some other metric that we could point to. He says the problem is, though, that when we get close to that level, the bar moves. So the minute we get a building, then, okay, we've got that. What next? The bar moves. So everything we've been hoping and praying for, once we receive it, then what's next? There's something else to be anxious about. There's something else to be looking to. And Matt said, and this just really struck me, he said that there is no there there. When you say, if we could only do this, if we could only get to this point, once you reach that, then it's not enough. There's no there, there. Numbers are not the win. Talking about population and people. He says the destinations are not the win, like buildings and locations. He said names and stories are the win. Names and stories are the win. That the journey through seeing God work among us, that is the destination. The journey following Christ each day in your life, that is the destination. And we will never get to the place where the dream stops becoming larger and larger. If we continue to pursue God's heart, we're going to see bigger and greater things. We're going to be shooting for and, and, and trying for greater things for what he wants to accomplish in and through us in the world. I mean, just think about this. What happens to a church when they meet a level and they think they've arrived? they instantly start into decline, instantly. Even if the effects aren't felt for decades, I'm sure many of you can think about churches that you attended that have nice buildings, but the population is 70 and older, and they're just waiting for the people and the money to run out. When you stop dreaming, when you stop pursuing, when you feel like you've just arrived and now we can just be self-centered and all about ourselves and we never have to change, you instantly begin on the path of decline. 
And this is a problem in many churches in our nation and in our world. There will never be a place of satisfaction that will take the burden off of our shoulders, the need for each of us to personally be fully committed to the vision God has spoken over our lives and our ministry. What many Christians fail to realize is that the way to success in the ministry is completely dependent on our commitment to love Christ with our whole heart, to be completely surrendered to his will for our lives, to walk in faith with those that that, uh, call themselves brothers and sisters in Christ, and to let the love for one another transform our lives. We say here at Vertical Life Church, we exist as a church to engage people where they are and lead them to becoming fully developed followers of Jesus Christ. This is a never-ending pursuit for each one of us. So we live, as a church, we live not for the masses, not for a large congregation, but we live for one person at a time, one soul at a time, because everyone matters to God. Everyone matters. Every story matters. What God is doing in each of your lives matters. And as we engage one person at a time, one seed at a time, those seeds will begin to grow. And one seed reaps more than one seed in return. It reaps a whole harvest of seeds. And each seed that we reach, each seed that we plant, each seed that we sow, each soul that we connect with will turn into the masses. As we partner with Christ to build this church, it can be easy to be discouraged when we don't see the harvest come in as quickly as we want. But we have to understand that in order to go from planting time to harvest time, there is a season of growth. And part of our problem has been, partially, that you have had a leader who's been focused too much on processes and numbers, on being cool and being trendy, thinking that if we just had all the right stuff, the nights, lights, the sound system, the, the, all the latest and greatest technology, which is probably why it doesn't work each week, but if we had the latest and greatest, the people would just want to come and, and then we would just begin to grow. The problem is, is it doesn't work that way. And I'm sorry that that was part of my heart issue. But I'm determined and dedicated and committed to change that. Because not only do I want a place where we experience the power and presence of God here, I want this place to be a place that transforms us. That transforms, to be a place where we earnestly desire to compel people to come, where we're like, not just am I going to church, but I got to get people to come here with me, that I love my church so much that I meet God here, that I got to get my neighbors here, I got to get my family here, I got to get my coworkers here, that there's something about what God is doing here in this place that is so contagious that I can't stand still until I at least get somebody to come with me. That's the kind of church that I want to see. I'm not content with just having a friendly church, but a church that exemplifies the love of Christ and the love for each other. There's a story in the Bible, a very familiar person in the Bible, a guy who had a great vision, who had a lot of passion, but there was an event in his life that brought his life to a place of discouragement. And he went through a season that was much like a valley of dry bones. If you have your Bibles, you can turn, uh, turn to Luke chapter 22. The verses will also be on the screen. But this is the story of Peter, Simon Peter, an apostle and disciple of Christ. He was in the Lord's inner circle. He was very close to Jesus. 
And this is just before the Lord is crucified. He has this meeting with his disciples and he's talking with them. And he turns to Peter in Luke 22, beginning in verse 31. And here's what Jesus says to Peter. He says, Simon, Simon, Satan, that's the devil, has asked to sift each of you like wheat. But I have pleaded in prayer for you, Simon, that your faith should not fail. So when you've repented and turned to me again, strengthen your brothers. And Peter said, Lord, I'm ready to go to prison with you and even to die with you. But Jesus said, Peter, let me tell you something. Before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny three times that you even know me. This story is so significant in many different levels, and we don't have the time to really unpack everything that we can pull out of this one story. But here what I see is significant is that Satan asked Jesus, asked the Lord to sift the disciples and Peter as wheat, to take them down, to shake them up. And we can determine by what Jesus says in verse 32. Jesus says, this is what has happened, Satan. So when you have repented, turn to me again and strengthen your brothers. In other words, Jesus is telling Peter, Satan asked, and I said yes. Satan asked to sift you, and I said, go right ahead. And after you've fallen, after you have been sifted, turn to me again and strengthen your brothers. The Bible says Satan is like a roaring lion seeking who he may devour. He seeks not just to sift them as wheat, but he seeks to sift us as wheat. Satan is prowling around looking for an opportunity, an occasion. He's looking for an area of weakness and an area of opportunity to attack us in our everyday life. Not just us as a church, but each individual person. But look what Peter says to Jesus in verse 33. This is kind of funny and not funny at the same time. In verse 33, after Jesus says this to Peter, Peter said, Lord, I'm ready to go to prison with you and even to die with you. Now think about this for just a minute. Up until this point, Peter has seen Jesus tell the future. He has seen him uh, uh, tell someone what they were doing when he was nowhere around. He's seen him feed the 5,000 with with, uh, just a sack lunch. He's seen him walk on the water, seen him calm the storm, raise the dead, and all these miraculous things. And what do you think is going through Peter's mind when Jesus tells him something's going to happen and Peter says, I think you got this one wrong, God. I think I know myself a little bit better than than you do. I mean, you you had all this stuff right, but I think this is the one area that I can help you understand fully. I'm not going to fail you. I am going to give my life for you. There's no way that what you said about me is true. He's talking to God. I just think this is kind of humorous, that all these things up until this point, that, that Peter is like, nah, mm, uh, I just don't agree with you on this one. But the question I have is, what attitude is Peter displaying here? When Jesus says, you're going to deny me three times, and Peter says, I'm going to go to prison with you and even die with you, what attitude is Peter displaying? What do you think? Yell it out. Arrogance. Pride. It's pride. He knows who Jesus is. He knows God knows everything. It is pride that rises up in his heart. He gets offended at what Jesus says, and he says, no, that's not true. This is what is true. Pride and arrogance rises in his heart, and he declares, the God, you've got it wrong this time. 
And we know the story of Peter. We know what happens after this, right? Jesus and the disciples go to the garden to pray. The, the soldiers come. And Peter, I'm sure, thinking about this very conversation, says, here's my opportunity. Here's my chance to prove God wrong. He draws his sword and he cuts off the ear of the temple servant, Malchus. And Jesus, looking at Peter, he says, Peter, put your sword down. Those who live by the sword will die by the sword. In other words, he's saying, Peter, that issue in your heart, that, 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 that pride that's welling up within you, that is a gateway that's going to bring a curse into your life, a curse that Satan will most willingly take advantage of. You're opening a doorway to allow the enemy to sift you as wheat, to bring curses into your life. And what do we see happen from that point on? The soldiers take Jesus away. All the other disciples flee in fear, and Peter walks behind at a distance, watching what happens. And in the courtyard, as Jesus is being interrogated, as he's being beaten, this brash warrior, this man who would die with Jesus, becomes overcome with fear that he denies Jesus three times, and one of which was to a little girl. Think about it. I'm going to die. I'm going to cut this guy's ears off. This little girl comes up and says, I've seen you. And he says, no, I don't know the man. And he curses. I've never met the man. Let me ask you this question. Whose influence was Peter under in that moment? It's the devil. The Bible says God has not given us a spirit of fear but a spirit of power, love, and a sound mind. Did you know fear is a spirit? It's not an emotion. It's a spirit. And fear motivates us, the spirit of fear motivates us to act contrary to what faith would lead us to do. The spirit of fear motivates us to act contrary to what faith would lead us to do. And fear made Peter afraid to answer these accusations truthfully, leading to denial. And what we also know in the Word of God, and, and John writes in his letters, that denial comes from a spirit of Antichrist. That Antichrist, the spirit of Antichrist, causes men to deny who Jesus is, to deny that he even has walked the earth. So right here, as we're looking at this story, we can see as the spirit of Antichrist blinds the minds of those who don't believe, that makes people deny the Lord, that Peter was operating not only under a stronghold of fear, but a stronghold of Antichrist because his pride, the pride that the gateway uh, Satan used, uh, allowed him to gain this foothold and dominate and influence his heart and his mind. Spiritual warfare is happening in this story, and so often we just gloss over it. And this is not really what this message is about, but I think it applies perfectly to the life of a church because Peter had a relationship with Jesus. Peter was in the inner circle. Peter was close. Peter knew the Lord. Peter thought that his heart was in such a place that he'd be willing to give up his life to even die for Jesus if he was provoked. Yet Satan is given power and influence to manipulate Peter's emotions and his decisions. So don't you think that if Satan is given power to influence Peter's emotions and decisions, that he too might be given authority to influence your emotions and decisions? Think about it. Because of the sin in our hearts, 
that we open these doorways, we allow the enemy to sift us as weak because of these uh, issues in our heart. And just as he was trying to destroy the church through Peter's emotions and decisions, to destroy the plan that God has for his life, to destroy the vision that God had for Peter, to destroy what God wanted to create because he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Satan wanted to destroy that which God was trying to birth, that he too might want to destroy the church through our lives by manipulating our emotions and our decisions. We saw last week that Jesus, writing to the church of Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2, that Ephesus was this mega church, but because they had lost their love for Christ and one another, that Jesus was getting ready to remove their light, and it would be the end of their church. What might the enemy, too, be doing in our hearts to bring down Vertical Life Church? And Peter, he had fulfilled the Lord's words. He denied Jesus three times. And then Satan does what Satan always does when we agree with his lies, his manipulation. He, he leaves us to uh, fall under the weight of guilt and shame. And Luke twenty two sixty one through 62 says this, that at the moment the Lord turned and looked at Peter after the third denial, Suddenly, the Lord's words flashed through Peter's mind. Before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny three times that you even know me. And Peter left the courtyard weeping bitterly. In that moment where he gave in and he fulfilled the Lord's words, he gave in to the temptation of the enemy, the influence of the enemy. He was left to deal with his circumstances and the consequences. Peter wasn't living under fear in any Christ any longer, but now he's weighed under a spirit of guilt and shame. So much so that many scholars seem to believe right here at this moment, Peter quits. He walks away. He resigns as a disciple, and he goes back to the trade of his father to be a fisherman. So what Peter realized in this moment is that he was not as spiritual as he thought he was. He was blinded by pride. He needed to take a fall in order to wake up to the reality of his own spiritual condition. And he needed to enter this dark place to see his true need for God. Right here in this moment, he felt just like Ezekiel did in the Valley of Dry Bones, as Israel did in the desert. He kind of felt hopeless, wondering, what good am I now? What, what is going to happen now? Peter thought he'd messed things up so much to the point that there was no return, that there was no more room for him at the Lord's table, that the best days were behind him. He thought the vision that God spoke over his life could never come to pass, for he was looking through earthly vision, earthly eyes, and not spiritual vision or heavenly eyes. And he forgot the words of Christ that were spoken just as Jesus was speaking of his denial. He forgot the very thing that Jesus said what happened or what he needed to do after his denial. In Luke twenty two thirty two, Jesus said, I've pleaded in prayer for you, Simon, that your faith should not fail. So when you have repented, turn to me again and strengthen your brothers. In other words, he says, after you've repented, after you recognize what you've done, after your fall, after your valley of bones, after your dark time, after this time of uncertainty, this season of disappointment, this season of refining, this is not the end for you, Peter. This is not the end. For I know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord. They are for good and not disaster to give you a future and a hope. This is not the end. The fall is not the end. The dark time is not 
the end. Repent of what you've done. Repent of your attitudes, of the ways you followed the enemy's voice. Don't resign from your position, Peter. Revision, reset, and re-sign. Make your mark on the dotted line for this calling that I've placed on your life. For I have spoken it over you, and I am declaring to you I will fulfill it in your life if you chase after it again. So after his failure, Jesus gives him a vision of what he wanted to accomplish through him. Gives him a vision of a sheet out of heaven and all these different foods. And it basically reveals that he wanted to use Peter to open the gateway or the doorway of the gospel to the Gentiles. And God uses him to begin revival in the Gentile people. People who have never heard the truth or had access to the truth before. And Peter becomes a catalyst for a Holy Spirit revival among the Gentiles. You see, church, God never gives up on his sons and daughters. God never leaves us or forsakes us. Psalm 37, 24 says, Though they stumble, they will never fall, for the Lord holds them by his victorious right hand. Sometime later, after the resurrection, Peter's quit. He's doing the only thing he knows how to do, he was fishing. He went back to being comfortable, back to his comfortable life where he wasn't really stretched. He wasn't really being forced to walk in faith and trust God for every day. He was trying to control his situation, kind of trying to push down and beat down the thoughts of guilt and shame. And in an unforeseen moment, Peter has a life-changing encounter with Jesus Christ again that forever changes his life, his ministry, and the future of the church corporately. In John 21, Jesus is on the shore, just off the shore to where they were fishing. And they had been fishing all night and they didn't catch anything. And off to the, the shore, they see a man there and the man calls out. And the man is Jesus. He calls out. Uh, verse 4, it says, At dawn, Jesus was standing on the beach, but his disciples couldn't see who he was. He called out, Fellows, have you caught any fish? No, they replied. Then he said, throw out your net on the right-hand side of the boat, and you'll get some. So they did, and they couldn't haul in the net because there were so many fish. It's not part of the message. I just want to throw it out there that we can only accomplish so much, but with God, we can accomplish anything. And if we try to do things outside of what God asks us to do, we will accomplish nothing. But when we do the very thing God tells us to do, we'll reap more than we ever thought possible. They threw out their net instantly. Verse 7 says, The disciple Jesus loved said to Peter, It's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his tunic, for he stripped for work, jumped in the water, and headed to shore. He didn't even wait to get the boat to shore. He just jumped in the water and went swimming. The others stayed with the boat and pulled the loaded net to shore, for they were only about 100 yards from the shore. When they got there, they found breakfast waiting for them. Jesus had cooked them breakfast. It was very nice. Fish cooking over charcoal fire and some bread. Bring some of the fish you've just caught, Jesus said. So Simon Peter went aboard, dragged the net to shore. There were 153 large fish, and yet the net hadn't torn. Now come and have some breakfast, Jesus said. None of the disciples dared to ask him, Who are you? For they knew it was the Lord. Then Jesus served them bread and fish. And this was the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples since he had been raised from the dead. And here's the encounter that changes Peter's life. After breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, verse 15, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter replied, you know I love you. Then feed my lambs, Jesus told him. Jesus repeated the question, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, Peter said, you know I love you. Then take care of my sheep, Jesus said. 
The third time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt that Jesus asked the question a third time because right here, Jesus realized what was happening. I mean, Peter realized what Jesus was doing. He asked him three different times because there were three other occasions where Peter failed to answer correctly. And he said, yes, Lord, you know everything. Notice before he questioned what God knew, now he knew that Jesus knew everything. Jesus, what Jesus said was the truth. You know everything. There was a change of heart in Peter. He realigned his heart to the truth. And he says, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, then feed my sheep. The reason why Jesus asked Peter if he loved him three times was because he was redeeming the three times that he failed to acknowledge the Lord, the three times he denied him. He was redeeming those denial, that denial, and he was infusing into Peter a calling and speaking a vision over Peter's life that it was not to fish for food. It was to fish or feed his sheep. And just as Jesus was saying, I know you feel ashamed. I know you feel guilty. I know you're in this dark place where you don't see any light at the end of the tunnel. I know you feel like all you want to do is escape by going to do what's comfortable, to find some place that, that just makes you feel good. But you know what, Peter? I have a mission for you. I have a vision for your life. I have written your life into the saga of a bigger story than you can possibly imagine, and it is not to be comfortable. It is to do what I've called you to do as part of the very people I died to create. And as I relate this story to our story, to even my own personal story, and to the difficult transition we've been walking through as a church together, it's easy to look at mistakes or failures or disappointments or unrealized dreams and say, you know what? Wouldn't it be easier, better, just to find something more comfortable, something that just fits me better? To leave this valley of bones, failed expectations, this discomfort for greener pastures somewhere else. But you know what I believe what God is saying to us today is a phrase that I've picked up here recently that has just kind of hit me. It says, you know, we believe that the grass is greener on the other side, or we'd like to believe the grass is greener on the other side. But the phrase that has hit me is this, that the grass is only greener on the lawn you water. The grass is not greener on the other side. The grass is only greener on the lawn you water. God is not calling us to go find green pastures ourselves because he is our shepherd and we shall not want. He makes us to lie down in green pastures. He leads us beside still waters and he restores our soul. And as we pursue his vision for our lives together, as we, we pursue his vision for this ministry together, he will bring us to greener pastures. He will raise the valley of dry bones into an unstoppable army. He will establish our feet, for he is the rock of our salvation. Now is not the time to go fishing for comfort and ease. Now is the time to go fishing for men. To re-sign on the dotted line. To surrender to God's call on your life and for your ministry through Vertical Life Church. Now is the time to respond to the Lord and say, God, here I am. Send me. Let's bow for prayer. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for this story. Thank you, God, that you are not done with us. Thank you, God, that you have big plans for us. Thank you, God, that every person here matters to you, that their story matters. That no matter what type of dark time they've been going through, what discouragement they've faced, what struggles they've been 
battling with each day, you've not left them or forsaken them. Thank you, God, that even though there's a time that each of us go through where we're sifted and we feel like we've made mistakes that are too big to overcome, the word says not to be fearful or weary because you have overcome the world. So we can be strong and of good courage. You have overcome. And because you have overcome, we are overcomers in Christ Jesus. We are more than conquerors through Christ Jesus. God, I thank you that what we see with our eyes isn't the truth. What you have spoken over us is the truth. That sometimes what we see doesn't lead us to faith and to hope. But God, your word will always lead us to hope. To know that you have plans for us for good and not disaster. To give us a future and a hope. And we thank you, God, that the time of the harvest is drawing near the time where we will begin to reap the benefits of the seeds that have been sown in this community. With every head bowed and every eye closed, no one looking around, just in the quietness of this moment as we go into a time of response, we like to end with a worship song just to allow our hearts just to meditate on what God has spoken to us through this message. Right now in this moment, just ask the Lord, God, what are you saying to me? What are you speaking to my heart? What do you want for my life? What are the areas of my heart that are open doorways, that are opportunities for the enemy to use against us? What are you speaking to me, Father? In just a moment, when the band begins to sing, I'm going to invite you to stand and to respond. We're coming forward for prayer. And just take what God speaks to you before the Lord and just say, Lord, here I am. Send me. If he's calling you to do something in his kingdom, calling you to step up in an area of ministry in the church, if he's calling you to do uh, something in the community, respond. Say, here I am. Send me. If there's something in your heart that you've been wrestling with, maybe there's an attitude or, or there's a situation that you just haven't been able to overcome, just lay it down and say, God, I'm giving this to you. I don't want this to get in the way of what you want to do in my life any longer. Forgive me of where I failed and give me the strength to overcome. I am yours in the name of Jesus. Whatever God speaks to your heart, you respond. And for the next few moments, we're going to have a time of worship and prayer. Now, I'll be down front if you need prayer for anything. Maybe you have a, a health issue. You'd like prayer for healing. I'll be down front to pray for healing. If God has spoken to your heart and you have a word of encouragement for the church. Maybe something in the message struck you and uh, God laid something on your heart. The microphone is down front for you to offer that word. But for the next few moments, you respond to what God is doing in your heart. All these people.